Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. And hello, this is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist, continuing with our podcasts. So today we're going to be discussing the five phases and how the candida treatment works in its entirety. I would like to present each phase, giving somewhat detail, uh, and explain how in normal cases the phase would work and what the expected result also is for each phase. So the candida treatment, as many of you know, begins with phase zero. And we consider phase zero to actually be part of our testing phase. Phase zero is where we would do the initial urine tests, which measure the person's candida level. And the purpose in phase zero is to do the urine tests as a challenge. So we do an initial urine test as a baseline Then we have the person take the phase zero for about three weeks, and then the person repeats the urine test again. The purpose of this is to allow the phase zero to loosen or, or, um, let's say, draw out any possible microorganisms which are in the person's system, which we were not aware of by the first test. So this type of test is called a challenge test or a provoked test. And this is essentially the concept is to take something that's going to draw out what you're looking for in order to be able to find it more easily. This is done with drug testing. It's done with toxic metal testing in particular. And we are the first group who has ever used this to uh, apply to a microorganism issue where we use the testing to draw microorganisms out of hiding, literally. Now... The purpose of phase zero is not to cure the person or necessarily even to treat them. Many people do have improvements on phase zero. We've had the occasional person who swears that they were cured by phase zero, which is impossible. Why someone might have improvements on phase zero is because phase zero is able to um, absorb a great deal of the amount of toxins that are being produced by the candida. And in absorbing those toxins, it tends to key out or reduce a lot of the symptoms that are being turned on by the toxins released by candida. Phase zero itself is very effective at eliminating intestinal candida. It um, is the only treatment I'm aware of which can eliminate intestinal candida without developing drug resistance in the organisms to the modalities that are being used. Now, why that is, 
primarily is because phase zero operates strictly in a mechanical sense. In phase zero, we have enzymes that digest the outside membrane of the candida. We have diatomaceous earth, which pierces in to candida and other microorganisms in its attack. And we have the candy loosener product, which literally loosens these organisms and interferes with their ability to cling or stick or hang on to the lining of the intestinal tract, therefore just literally calling, causing them to fall off the lining of the intestines. Phase zero cannot cause resistance, therefore your candida will never become immune to the effects of phase zero. So it could theoretically be taken indefinitely. I would not recommend that because phase zero has certain properties which tend to inhibit some of the minerals in your diet. Uh, so if, if someone took phase zero every day forever, it's possible they may not absorb all their minerals the way they should. That doesn't mean it would be harmful or automatically it's going to cause mineral deficiencies. It just means that it may not uh, lead to optimal mineral absorption. The acceptable times that we have for people being on phase zero are anywhere between one to two years. That would be an acceptable time to be on it continually. And, and thereafter, I would do it in some kind of repetition. Um, very often, we have people do phase zero four months of the year just as a maintenance. Phase zero, of course, leads us to phase one. Now, what we're trying to accomplish on phase one is the elimination of the majority of the candida. From the testing that we do on phase zero, whether it's the home urine tests, leaky gut testing, stool testing, or whatever, we have ascertained the information on the person's case. We have a good understanding of what type of microorganism overload they have. And that's what leads us then to be able to put them on phase one. We can put a person on phase one based on the test information that we get on phase zero. Not all phase one programs are the same, nor should they be. The idea behind our program is that when we test the individual, we come up with the program that's individually correct or optimal for them. That's the hallmark of the whole Biamonte Center technology is that we foremost believe in testing, testing you to find out what's the right thing for you, what's optimal for you. So it's, you're never going to find two people whose programs are identical. It would be very rare. So with the data that we get from the testing, we go to phase one. Phase one is the rotation program that most people know about who are familiar with our uh, program. And on the rotation program, the person is usually rotating four to five different medicines every four days. And the person continues this until the urine test tells us that they are no longer having an effect on, from those medicines. When I see the person's testing, I will then select four different substances, which I believe will be the most effective for them. Uh, I take into consideration the yeast, bacteria, possible virus, possible Lyme disease, possible parasites. All those things are taken into consideration. And we then give the patient these four items to rotate, four days each. Why we take them four days each is four days is a, a good period of time for them to start creating an effect on the microorganisms without having the microorganisms anywhere close to being drug resistant to them. Because each of the substances that we use has a different modality or action and how it kills the yeast, 
switching them around four days is like really giving it a shotgun effect because you're changing each time, each four days, what type of uh, attack you're coming after the microbes with. So it leaves them very uh, defenseless and you're, because you're getting a variety of, me of mechanisms involved in killing them, uh, it usually serves better than just one type of medicine. The phase one program will typically last two to three months on the average. When the person completes the first month on phase one, if they're not having an extreme amount of die-off that would be visible in the urine test or die-off that could be seen, I'm sorry, felt by the patient, we'll cover that in a second, we then increase the doses of phase one. We normally start out everyone on very conservative doses of the phase one medicines. Those doses are typically what the manufacturer recommends. And then after a month, we will increase the doses by 50% for about two weeks. Then we will increase the doses again by 100% for another two weeks. If at the end of that month, the urine test is not showing die-off and the person's not feeling die-off, we then proceed to phase two. How die-off is seen on the urine test, the home urine test, is by the curdling part of the test becoming more intensely curdled or by the red test, which is the oxidative test, becoming more red. The pH may also drop and become more acidic. The die-off that the person might feel subjectively could be that they feel like they have the flu. That's the most common die-off symptom I think that you'll find is feeling like you have the flu. It's also possible that any existing symptom the person has may get worse as a result of the die-off. So if the person moves to phase two, our object on phase two is to destroy the deep intestinal candida that the person has. This is the candida that's not reachable using phase zero and one. We switch the type of antifungals we use to antifungals that work directly into the intestinal tract and absorb deep into the membrane there. Uh, the phase zero program is continued throughout phase one. It's also continued into phase two. And when we get to phase two, we increase the doses of phase zero so that the phase zero can allow for more surface room to allow these intestinal antifungals to go deeper. Part of the action of phase zero is to increase the bowel movements or keep the intestinal tract more clean and open. And this is why we raise the dose of phase zero because we want as much surface area to be formed so that the intestinal antifungals can reach and absorb down into the intestines. Phase two will typically last one to two months. And again, there can be die-off on phase two, similar to phase one. On phase two, it tends to be more gas, bloating, and digestive changes reported by people because of the fact that we're concentrating on the intestinal tract and quite deep into the intestinal tract. Phase two uh, is actually more powerful than phase one, but its actions are limited to just the intestinal tract. Well, phase one is more killing the candida and any microorganism all over the body 
phase zero, phase zero and phase two are just concentrating directly on the intestinal tract. So while it's more powerful, it's also in a way more limited than the phase one would be. Now with phase two, uh, interesting thing is that you will occasionally find someone who develops a vaginal yeast infection while on phase two, or men may occasionally develop some prostate irritation. It's also possible that the, the person's mouth or tongue could suddenly become more white. All of these reactions occur because of the die-off that's occurring. In the intestinal tract, the fungal form of the candida is converting itself temporarily to the yeast form, which is why a woman may suddenly get a yeast infection or why the mouth may suddenly get yeasty. This is a defense mechanism of the candida, which is called a dimorphic phase. Dimorphic means to live in two different states. Candida does live in two different states. It lives as a fungus and as a yeast. In the intestinal tract, in the more advanced form, it's a fungus. When you kill it with the medicines that we use, it tends like a chameleon to try to switch itself to a yeast. Therefore, the person may manifest a, yeast, a vaginal yeast infection or the mouth, as I said before, could start getting yeasty. This is actually a form or a sign of die-off. Uh, often there's not much to do about it because it usually passes in a few days, but it's an interesting phenomena to note when it happens because it is actually telling you something good that the program is actually working as opposed to you're getting worse or this is a horrible relapse that you now have. That's not the case at all when that occurs. The next step that we move to after phase two, and this is phase two part A we had just discussed, typically is phase two part B, which we mostly think of as the second half of phase two. And this is the probiotic step. And this is a very interesting step. Why it's interesting is because it's the end result of a lot of research I did on probiotics. And the research that I did on probiotics came, we came away with certain rules that we learned. The first rule is you don't give probiotics to someone until they finish phase two part A, or until you have removed the majority of the candida from their intestines. The reason why you don't do that is because the probiotics are not able to stick to the gut lining until you've removed the majority of the candida. This is something you're not going to hear from the supplement companies. They're not going to volunteer this information to you in the health food store because it interferes with purchasing of the products. For quite a few years, I did uh, research with the Great Smokies Lab, which is now Genova Labs in North Carolina, and they allowed my patients to submit stool samples every week for five to six weeks at one period of time. And they were doing this while I was giving these patients very expensive probiotics. During that period of time, we did not see probiotics appearing in the person's stool. The majority of these people who were submitting these tests had no growth of lactobacillus or bifidus. And despite the fact they were taking these high-powered expensive probiotics, we were not seeing the probiotics show up in the stool samples that were being tested. It wasn't until we started to give the antifungals that we now use on phase two in conjunction with those probiotics that we started to see the probiotics showing up in the stool. So what this tells you 
is that unless you are using antifungals to reduce the amount of candida in the intestines, and until you reduce the amount of candida in the intestines down to something that's more normal, the probiotics are not able to stick. Therefore, they're not going to show up in the stool test. This means your expensive probiotic that you're taking is literally going in one end and out the other. Now, on phase two, part B, it's a very interesting study for uh, any doctor or nutritionist or uh, anyone interested in this field, because you're going to find on phase two, part B, a wide array of prebiotics, which are necessary for the growth of probiotics. The arguing, as an example, over which probiotic is the best to use is pretty much worthless if you don't have that probiotic accompanied by a good arsenal of prebiotics. And this is far more true in the case of the person who's had candida, because in those who have had candida, it's more difficult to get the probiotics to reattach and stick to the gut lining due to the upset that candida creates in your digestive tract. So taking the best probiotic, which has the highest counts of microorganisms, is kind of meaningless if you don't accompany that probiotic with the correct prebiotics. Prebiotics are certain vitamins like biotin, which is a prebiotic. Biotin helps probiotics to flourish in the intestines. Fiber is a big prebiotic because the fiber gives the probiotic a food to basically consume and produce short-chain fatty acids from, which short-chain fatty acids help the probiotics to live in the intestinal tract and they also help repair the intestinal lining. There are friendly yeasts called Saccharomyces boulardii, which help the probiotics to establish themselves because these friendly yeasts literally crowd around bad microbes that are still there and allow the good, ye the good bacteria to, to be able to attach itself to the lining. There are certain foods and certain sugars which are able to feed the friendly bacteria and allow it to multiply rather quickly. You have to be careful with these uh, substances. The key one is called FOS, which is fructooligosaccharide. You must be careful with these organisms, uh, be, uh, I'm sorry, with these types of probiotics, or prebiotics rather, because they have the ability to feed harmful microbes. FOS in particular can feed certain protozoa and can feed certain bacteria, one in particular called Klebsiella, which is a dangerous bacteria that can cause pneumonia and rheumatoid arthritis and many other problems. So you want to try to make sure before you give these things that you have disinfected the person's intestinal tract as much as possible. On the Biamonte home urine test, if there is the presence of these harmful bacteria, the indicant test, which is the one that turns blue, will be positive. This is why we don't give probiotics to people who have high indicants, because we're running the risk of feeding organisms like Klebsiella that they may have and giving them other medical issues. But it's also for the fact that if you have an elevated indican, the probiotics just won't stick in the intestinal tract because an elevated indican equals a toxic colon. So in the phase 2b, you will see this wide array of prebiotics. You will see probiotics being used. There are principally two. We have a lactobacillus probiotic, this is Lactobacillus acidophilus. And we only use sticky strain. Um, I know for a fact that the Metagenics company, all of their probiotics are human slash sticky strain. 
Therefore, I pretty much exclusively only use Metagenics probiotics because I know for a fact that they are that sticky human strain. That doesn't mean that other companies may not have that. Uh, I just haven't really, really come across the research proving to me that other companies are sticky or human strain. Therefore, I haven't wandered off from using the Metagenics company, which I know is for definitely. And that's an important point because the reason it's called sticky strain is because it sticks to your gut lining. The non-sticky strain bacteria don't stick to the gut lining, so they tend to be in your mouth and out into the toilet bowl. So there's, there goes your, your treatment plan and your money. And this is why we don't use those types. Bifidus bacteria is very interesting. I spent many years studying bifidus bacteria, studying its effects when you give it as a supplement. And what I concluded was that I, if I wanted to really keep my patients free of candida and get their friendly bacteria to regrow, since the colon is the major site of candida infection in the body, that doesn't mean that it can't overgrow in the small intestines, the stomach, and elsewhere, but the colon is the major site. The bacteria which inhabits the colon that protects you from candida multiplying in your colon is bifidobacteria, known as also as bifidus. Giving people oral bifidus supplements and then checking their stool taught me that the only way to get bifidus to really grow in your colon is to directly implant it there. Um, I have seen for years and probably hundreds of stool tests that giving the person bifidus bacteria by mouth does not get it to establish itself in the colon well enough to keep the candida away. Therefore, the, one of the principal things on our phase two part B program is to have the patient take an enema, which we could also call an implant. This is basically the same thing as an enema, only it's a small amount of water that's mixed with the friendly bifidus. The person told, takes it as an enema and then holds it in. Now, I'm not going to say that they're taking an enema because technically the person taking an enema is doing so to clean out their, their colon. That's not the purpose of what we're doing here. We're not giving the person an enema to clean out their colon. They're not even taking enough water for that to occur in, the, in this procedure. They're taking a small amount of water, enough to mix the bifidus and suspend it in the water, and then enough water to get it to come into the, the rectum and go into the large intestine. But we're not using enough water to really allow a cleansing to occur of the colon. This is meant to be an implant and it's meant for the person to be able to hold this water perhaps overnight or at least for five minutes, let's say. Uh, five minutes would be the minimum time that someone should hold on to this water mixed with the bifidus in order to get it to transfer into the colon. Very often when people do this procedure, they get gas and bloating, which is perfectly normal. That gets better and better the longer you're on the treatment. As a matter of fact, gas and bloating are typical on phase two, part B, the probiotic step, and the gas and bloating tend to get better as the candida that's left over eliminates itself and as the, the probiotics take over. So when you start on phase two, part B, if you get gas and bloating, consider that normal, but also expect it to get less and less. And at the time that you're able to take the whole phase with minimal gas and bloating, that is your objective evidence 
that the majority of your candida is gone and your probiotics are taking over. We generally like to have the person modify their diet when they get on phase 2B, especially if you're a blood type A, and we have a special blood type A diet for phase 2 part B that contains foods which help friendly bacteria to grow. At some point, we like to lower the doses of the phase uh, to serve kind of as a maintenance. When we see the urine test improving, and if we're particularly anxious to get the person into phase three, we will lower the doses of the phase two part B to more of a maintenance level, which would be three days a week. We'd have the person taking the phase Monday, Wednesday, and Friday only. And that is to ensure that we're still keeping the stream of the probiotics and prebiotics there so they can re-inoculate the digestive tract, but we're not giving so much as to interfere with the introduction of other nutritional supplements and nutrients, which would be used on phase three. So now as we transfer over into phase three, the goal of phase three is to balance a person's nutritional chemistries. In phase three, we're looking to correct any deficiency the person has, which may cause relapses of candida. Uh, we're looking to correct any excess of nutrient which exists, any toxicity which exists, and correct any hormone imbalance that exists. We're essentially looking to correct any biochemical or physiological imbalance in the person because to that degree that you have such a thing, you're susceptible to relapsing from candida. The major reason people relapse from candida is because they never fully eliminated it and they never fully got their friendly bacteria reestablished. But for the purposes of our program, we go beyond that because we know that if we follow all of the lower steps carefully and correctly, that we're going to accomplish that. So where we are concerned with the relapse possibility is in phase three. Because in phase three, if there's a nutrient imbalance or a hormone imbalance or, so, or some such thing, that will be an obvious indication of why they could relapse or what may have precipitated their candida problem in the first place. So we do a battery of some simple tests on phase three, which give us an idea of what the person's nutritional status is. We use uh, tissue mineral testing which show us the level of minerals in the person's tissue and also toxic minerals in their tissues. We use urine toxic metal tests to measure toxic metals. We used uh, organic acid tests and typical blood tests that the doctor would do, but they're interpreted from a nutritional viewpoint. And these types of tests give us a good idea of what your nutritional status is so that we can then correct it. Now, one thing I would say is that the type of test we don't do, and any clinical nutritionist that's worth his salt would not do, is a blood test that simply measures the level of nutrients in your blood. Um, any doctor who's doing this under the guise of being a nutritionist is showing you he is an amateur if he's using this type of test. Blood tests that measure the absolute level of a nutrient in the blood are useless because all they're showing you is the transportation of that nutrient it, this does not reflect your body's tissue storage or the utilization of the nutrients. Therefore, the types of tests that we use on phase three 
are tests which only reflect tissue storage of a nutrient, or tests which are showing physiologically and biochemically how the body's utilizing that nutrient so we can see how those pathways are working and see if we need to further support them. On phase three, it's very typical that we will um, analyze hormone levels in the body and we will balance the hormones. We use only bioidentical hormones and we also use nutritional formulas which have the ability to adjust the hormone level. As an example, if the person has an elevated level of cortisol or an elevated level of estrogen or some androgen, we have uh, nutritional formulas which are sort of like herbal, vitamin, mineral formulas, which are able to assist the body in lowering that hormone back down to its correct level. If the person's um, hormone levels are too low, we'll often use precursors of the hormone in order to try to help the body to raise the hormone as naturally as possible and under its own direction. Unfortunately, as you get older, let's say, uh, 40 plus, it starts to become possible that your body is going to have a great difficulty raising those hormones. So instead, what we will recommend would be supplements of the hormones using bioidentical transdermal creams. It's very important that a person who has had candida does not allow a doctor who is unfamiliar with candida to handle their hormones. Because there's a simple rule in dealing with hormones in a candida patient is you don't give the hormones orally. If you give a patient hormones by mouth who has or who's had candida, you run the risk of those hormones causing a candida relapse. Therefore, we only use transdermal creams in our practice because the transdermal cream is absorbed through the skin and there is no chance of that hormone, therefore, getting into the intestinal tract where the candida lives and then flaring it up. In a similar fashion, when we're dealing with toxic metals in a candida patient, we use substances which actually absorb the toxic metal in the intestinal tract to prevent it from being reabsorbed and then aggravating a candida condition. Candida has the ability, and this has been shown for quite some time, many doctors agree firsthand on this, that candida has the ability to absorb mercury and it seems to use mer the mercury as some kind of a nutrient. When candida absorbs mercury, the candida has been found to spread and become more aggressive. There was a wild rumor out there a while ago, a couple of years ago, that candida was the body's protective mechanism against mercury and the reason why candida would spread when you had mercury toxicity is it was because the candida was engulfing the mercury and ingesting it and trying to protect you from it. Well, if you believe that, then you're going to believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone shooter because that is so far from the truth, it's not even funny. Mercury spreads candida because mercury depresses the intestinal immune response. Mercury suppresses your body's immune reactions against candida directly. That in itself allows candida to spread. Aside from that, it's been seen that mercury is absorbed by candida and then somehow acts as a nutrient of some sort because when the candida absorbs the mercury, the, the candida spreads and becomes more aggressive. So it's not doing you a favor at all. It's, it's helping itself to the goodies that are at hand. 
So therefore, when we detoxify a candida patient of mercury, we use substances which have the ability to absorb the mercury in the vicinity of the candida so the candida can't reabsorb it and so that the mercury cannot be reabsorbed back into your bloodstream. These substances work in the intestinal tract very specifically to absorb mercury. Taking a substance or a program that absorbs toxic metals from your intestinal tract is just as important as taking things that are going to chelate and draw the toxic metal out of your tissues and into your intestines to be excreted. Because if you don't do that, there's a high percentage of the toxic metal that you'll reabsorb back in your body. I learned this the hard way. So in phase three, uh, these are some of the, uh, the procedures that we're using. We're balancing hormones, we're handling toxic metals, we're correcting deficiencies. This phase could possibly last for quite some time. People ask me typically, well, how long does phase three last? I'd say it could last anywhere between a few months or a few years, depending on what's wrong with the person. Um, we're, very, we're very fortunate to have as part of phase three and part of our program, the Chinese herbal formulas from Wei Labs. These formulas have been time proven by the, by the company. Wei Labs is staffed by medical doctors and oriental medical doctors, so they understand the pharmacology of the Chinese herb much better than the average person would. And the use of these products enable us to also help treat the person constitutionally. See, it's, it's one thing to determine you have a deficiency or you have a deficiency that's in a gland or an organ, which is suppressing the function of the gland and organ. It's another thing, however, to look at the gland, organ, and the system that we have there and approach it from a constitutional standpoint. Now, what I, what I mean by this is this starts to get into a, another related field that uh, I'm very happy to have been exposed to, which is engineering. When I was first out of naturopathic school, I was fortunate enough to work at Grumman Aerospace with systems analysis engineers in developing a computer program, which I've talked about on this podcast before, that was meant to be used in analyzing the astronauts' blood and tissue samples in outer space and the space station to determine their need for nutrients. Um, this system taught me how to think about the human body as an engineer would. And an engineer is actually the best qualified person to be a health practitioner because an engineer looks at things from a holistic or a whole viewpoint. Then he breaks them down into subsystems and how those subsystems interact with each other. I constantly hear from patients and friends that the reason they don't like uh, the established medical system is you go to the doctor and the doctor only knows about one thing. You know, you... you you're there and you're telling the doctor, gee, you know, every time I get this cough, I seem to break out in a rash. So if you're going to see a pulmonologist, well, all he cares about is your lungs and your cough. And when you tell him about the rash, it goes over his head. It's deaf ears. His idea is then to send you to a dermatologist to deal with the rash. Now, an engineer would look at this and an engineer would say, well, that's interesting that you have a cough and then you get a rash. I wonder what might be provoking both things to happen. There, might, there must be a common denominator. So the engineer would think to look for 
something that's both causing your cough and your rash at the same time. And that's the difference. And this is what we find, and this is what makes Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine so successful, is in traditional Chinese medicine, they tend to look at things the way a Western engineer would look. You'll hear terms like yin and yang and qi and all these things, and to you it may sound all like gibberish, but when you actually study Chinese medicine and you understand how they view the systems, you'll see it's extremely similar to how a Western engineer would look at the body. He would look at the body, he looks at the main systems that are there, he knows the subsystems, and then he looks at how everything interreacts and works together. So when he's analyzing your health, he's not just looking at one thing, he's looking at a whole, but understanding how all the parts to that whole work together. And this is what we've been doing at the Biamonte Center since our inception because of the influence that I've had from engineering. So in phase three, we are literally taking a look at the body from an engineering standpoint. When we talk about your adrenal glands or your thyroid gland, we, are, we know uh, at the same time that they are governed by the pituitary gland, the pineal gland, the hypothalamus. Areas of your brain help control those lower systems. So it's not as simple as you have adrenal exhaustion. The question is, why are your adrenal glands not being regulated from above via the pituitary or those other areas? These are all situations and considerations that are taken into account when we look at your body and your imbalances in the phase three program. Now, by the time the person has pretty much balanced everything and we have them detoxified and their nutrients are in good shape, this is the time that we will look at their immune function. And the reason why it's done at this time is because the sympathetic nervous system, which is largely composed of the adrenal glands, the thyroid, and the anterior pituitary, these areas help to stimulate the immune system. So very often, the person who comes who has chronic fatigue, whose immune system is burned out, and he himself feels burned out, he, his adrenal insufficiency is part of his immune insufficiency. There is an, a, a sympathetic, innervated immune response, as well as a parasympathetic, innervated immune response. To give you a quick um, 101 on what all that means, is your nervous system is divided into two parts. As a nutritionist, I'm interested in the nutrients that are involved in those two parts because we can take a multivitamin bottle and I can take all the ingredients in the multivitamin and I can put some of them on the left side of the table and I would say these nutrients in this multivitamin are things that stimulate your nervous system. So those would be sympathetic nutrients because that's, that's stimulating. And the other group of nutrients here in this vitamin bottle are parasympathetic. These are things that slow down your nervous system. Or these are nutrients which work in an automatic fashion in the nervous system. The parasympathetic system has that twofold effect. It can act like the uh, brake in a car, but it also tends to help things that run on automatic that the body doesn't have to be aware of. So when we're looking at the nervous system, we look at it from these two viewpoints, and we know that all the glands and all the organs in your body line up in the same way. The anterior pituitary, the thyroid gland, the adrenals are pretty more on the sympathetic side, where glands like the pancreas, 
the liver, the spleen, the thymus gland, or more on the parasympathetic side. So in looking at the overall glandular system and looking how everything is working in your body, we are also viewing it from the viewpoint of parasympathetic versus sympathetic. This is why very often in, in your phase three programs, um, we have to be careful of what nutrients we give you because if you're very out of balance, if you're very sympathetic or very parasympathetic, if we give you the wrong vitamins, we could make you worse. Even though a test may show you need that vitamin, it may make you worse temporarily, so we wouldn't want to use that. This is something we're going to cover more in depth in uh, one of the upcoming podcasts. We're going to be covering the effect of vitamins and nutrients on your body, and we'll I'll explain all this in more detail. Uh, suffice to say, in this podcast regarding the phase three of the program, this is a concept that you can, you can get just from this data that I'm giving you here. Uh, it's, the it's how relevant a nutrient is in balancing your nervous system. Uh, on phase three, also, we do neurotransmitter testing, which is very important because many hormonal issues that a person has extend also to their neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are the chemicals that work in your nervous system to balance the nervous system and to communicate within the nervous system. We've heard of epinephrine and norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine. All of these are chemicals that work in the nervous system to perform different functions. They interact with hormones and help those hormones to work. So when someone is having hormonal problems or imbalances, if addressing the hormone does not handle the problem, the problem may extend into the neurotransmitters that pair and work with those hormones, which is why these neurotransmitter tests might be used in order to help. The neurotransmitters also affect your immune system. So this is something which, be, which could be considered in the phase four program would be how the neurotransmitters are balanced to affect a change or the correct immune balance. When we get to phase four, the principal things we're interested in looking at are the person's immune defenses. So we want to see their white blood count and the breakdown of all the white and red blood cells. And we also want to look at their uh, immunoglobulins to make sure that their immunoglobulins are in the proper balance. The immunoglobulins are the chemicals that are involved in immune response. Well, generally, by the time that we finish phase four with the person, uh, we have the person in pretty good shape. Their immune system is working properly, and they're going to be in probably in the best shape of their life. We hear from many people who do our program that they never want to go back to eating the way they had in the past, for instance. It's interesting to note that when you have your immune system balanced, your entire body tends to be better balanced. Your emotions are better balanced. And that's really the way it should be. I think this is what was intended for us before we got into eating uh, artificial foods and foods that were devoid of nutrients and exposed to such incredible stress that we're exposed to. Uh, stress is another big effector of your immune system. And stress is an interesting thing in itself we could talk about because stress is different now than it was before. People will ask, well, how does your immune system work nowadays compared to in the past? And 
Stress has a large part of that. Hundreds of years ago, when you were walking in the jungle, uh, let's say you, for the most part, you might be pretty relaxed. And then an animal comes chasing you. So you may run for a while and have to climb up a tree until that animal is gone. And that might have been your stress for the day or the week. After you climb down from the tree and you go back to your, your business, you didn't really have much stress after that. You didn't have to watch the television and hear about all the political trouble and all the violence in the world. You didn't have mail to read with all your bills. So you have a different type of stress nowadays. Nowadays, the stress that you have is more constant and kind of more covert. And that causes a different demand on your nervous system and on your glandular system. It's certainly not the situation that you had in a more primitive society or a more primitive environment where the stress was more intermediate and more sporadic, let's say. And that does have a profound effect on your glandular system and immune system. People often say, well, why is it that you have to take vitamins and supplements? Because animals don't do that. And, uh, you know, if, if we were meant to take vitamins, they'd be growing on trees. Well, I, I could counter that with saying, well, if we were meant to read books on health, the books would be growing on trees. And that's not the case. The, the plain truth of it is in this society nowadays, in this environment we have pretty much worldwide, our soils are being contaminated with different toxic metals and different toxic chemicals. The podcast we had, uh, I think it was last week, went over how vegetables in our country are possibly thallium toxic. I told you the story of our patient, Bert, who ran into this accidentally and on his own research. Food now is very deficient in nutrients. When I was in nutrition school, we had to analyze the tomatoes for iron content. And we did this in our first year. And then in our fourth year, we had to go back to the same place, get the same tomatoes and analyze them again. And we saw in that four years a decline of about 15% of the total amount of nutrients. And we did it on multiple tomatoes. So we got an average to come up with that 15% drop. It wasn't just one tomato. We have pollution. We have toxicity in our environment all around us to the point that mo if most people knew what was really in their personal care items, in the processed food that they ate, they would be very upset. The toxicity that we face as a culture demands that we take nutritional supplements to offset this because our bodies weren't designed to live in a toxic world like this. Because living in a toxic world in itself isn't arbitrary or, or something that's not normal for our typical state, we then have to take nutritional supplements, which is also an arbitrary and not normal for our, our natural state. It is true, vitamins do not grow on trees. But on the other hand, the toxicity that we have in the environment is not something that we necessarily were, would be expecting to encounter. So in order to offset the toxicity we have, we need to do vitamin mineral supplementation to keep ourselves balanced because we're not able to get this, these nutrients that we need from our food. 
Our food is denatured. It's, for, to a large extent, nutritionally deficient. Even if it's organic, it, I guarantee you, doesn't have the same levels of nutrients that it might have had 100 or 200 years ago. The environment is much more toxic. So in order to offset this, we have to increase our nutrient balance by taking supplements because we would never get that amount of nutrient from eating the food. In order to get the amount of vitamin C that you need to help detoxify copper and mercury from your tissues, you would have to eat pounds and pounds of oranges every day. You wouldn't physically be able to do it. Uh, and that's true of many situations. In order to get the amount of a nutrient in your body that you need to offset toxicity and disease and also to compensate for your body's own genetic needs, which might be exceptional in some of these matters, you have to take nutritional supplements because if you tried to get that amount of nutrient by eating a food, it would be physically uncomfortable and not really possible to do. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Uh, here we've covered phase zero, one, two, three, and four. Tune in again this, thir- uh, this Tuesday upcoming. We will be having another live podcast. And if again, if there, we didn't take any questions here today because I became a bit too impassioned. You'll have to excuse me for that. Uh, if anyone has a question, of course, feel free to email it in. And I will be happy to answer it. Again, this is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist. Thank you for joining our podcast. And we will seek you again this coming Tuesday. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, certified clinical nutritionist. Michael holds a doctorate of nutropathy and is a New York State certified clinical nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. Welcome to the Candida Chronicles.